0: Let's try that. Oh, there I am. It is genuinely a joy to be here. Uh, Mark and I have known each other, Lindsay, for many years, and and this is the first time to get to visit here. And it's been uh, just, I'm one of those people that loves to to cheer for others that I think are on the same team. And, And we have such a sense in being here of sharing a common heart and a desire to See the church be more than a Christian club, be more than, uh, just a gathering place for those who already know the Lord, but, but really be a sending place and a serving place for those who are coming to that knowledge and, and we are generous and outward with our faith. So, uh, it's, this is a great church and, and you have a great leadership and, and we're just again, really, really happy to be here. Uh, In our church was, which is a a interesting place, you know. When people try to ask me about what's your church really like, and and I I say it's a mess. Uh, It's a a big conglomeration of people from really diverse backgrounds. We have just a significant amount of us that are broken. Uh, I I would count all of us in our church are broken, but. But we come, uh, some of us, from just a really tragic, sometimes background. As I said in the morning services, we have about a third of our folks come out of hardcore addiction, of crystal meth, heroin, cocaine. One of our groups that deals with people that are struggling for recovery or freedom, trying to get out of the mess that they're in, is focused on teenagers. And and that seems particularly tragic to me, though that's the, the nature of of the community that we're in and the world that that we occupy, but this particular group, which is focused on 12 to 18 year olds trying to overcome addiction issues, abuse issues, uh, one of the leaders told me about a a young girl that just came a few weeks ago to the group, and she came into the group, and both by the force of her personality and her appearance, the the group leaders were concerned that she was going to kind of derail the meeting. They were wondering how the group would respond to her she was quite provocatively dressed and and was obviously wanting to be the center of attention and and they were telling me that the group itself which is made up of you know almost 20 kids again in that teenage range that are really trying to overcome some of the most uh, difficult things in life that this whole group kind of responded to her in such a gracious way in such a A welcoming kind of accepting way that over the course of the meeting this young girl only 15 years old was able to to share some you know really horror stories of her life and the abuse that she suffered she was at present a heroin addict at 15 and and just was really living on the edge of destruction and over the course of that gathering, and and you know the just the the way that people were responding when she did open up about her life, these kids, you know, the the leader told me that that it was she was so thrilled that the kids themselves gathered around her and prayed for her. And in the course of the evening, she gave her heart to the Lord, and she's making a, a new beginning out of maybe the most kind of difficult background to really see change and life come and that's the kind of captures what we do that's really what we're about not everyone comes in our setting out of such tragedy but but many do and those who don't are coming from a place of emptiness or a recognition that life isn't working for them even those for whom life you know is going well and they're successful But that emptiness, that awareness that maybe I've climbed the ladder of success, but it's leaning on the wrong wall, you know, that that there's that recognition that I need something more, that I need a new beginning. And in that place, you know, I'm reminded of how, you know, Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3. and he wanted to know, you know, about Jesus. He said, we know that, that you must be sent from God because no one could do the miracles that you do. No one could change the lives the way that you change them and not be, you know, have God with them. And so Nicodemus is coming. I want to know, what, what, how am I supposed to respond to this? And, and Jesus shocks him by saying, you know, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have a, a brand new beginning in your life. And here's someone who was older and, and, and a leader and it felt like they had, you know, knew a lot and had probably accomplished a lot and had so much going with God. And here's Jesus telling them, you need a fresh start. You need a brand new beginning. And those, you know, that challenge of what it really means to encounter God, what it really means to see change come, that that's what we're not only called to hear from God, but we're called to share with one another. I want to talk to you out of, kind of reach further back in history than Nicodemus, though, and kind of talk about how real change happens or how we embrace it in our own life, how we share it with others. I want to reach further back in history, all the way back to the, to the rise of the kingship of Josiah in Second Kings chapter 22, and I want to talk from Josiah's life a little bit with you about how a new beginning and a fresh start happens. If you don't know the history of the people of Israel, it's a complicated history, a fascinating history. It so relates, honestly, to the way that people live their life and the world that we encounter. But, you know, Israel is called as a, a nation out of Egypt, out of a background of bondage and slavery, the last generation of which, under, you know, that Pharaoh's reign, was really a genocidal campaign to try to eliminate them as a people. And God delivers them with power and brings them out of their slavery, brings them out of Egypt, and leads them towards the promised land. And on that journey, of course, there's stops and starts. The, the history of Israel kind of, you know, as you read it, it's like following a roller coaster ride of, of ups and downs. When they finally begin to enter the land under Joshua and begin the conquest Again, that history goes as the early pattern will follow of sometimes faithfulness and then there's blessing and God is for them and helping them. And then other times idolatry and God withdraws and they suffer. That history goes right through the book of Judges, which follows the same up and down pattern. And then the people believing that maybe what will give them... (laughs) The stability they need. Maybe what will give them more enduring favor is if they have a king. Well, sounded good because everybody else around them had a king. Maybe if we have a king to lead an army and fight our wars, we'll not follow this same pattern of of you know real deprivation and insecurity. And so that God gives them a king, though that's not His. Uh, the plan, the way it would have unfolded, he gives them a king. He looks like a king, Saul. He kind of, you know, in every way, you know, this is the kind of king you want. And Saul is a disaster, and so much of a disaster that that the. You know, right to rule is stripped from him and given to David, who becomes really Israel's first real king, the the king in, in the right sense of the word, and unfortunately will be their greatest king, you know, from that, you know, posture of history. He will have the most Uh, kind of faithfulness to God's will and his ways. He will lead the people into their, you know, kind of greatest time of security and prosperity. And so David rules as a man after God's own heart and leads the people. But in the aftermath of David's death with the succession of his son Solomon, whose wealth and wisdom, of course, are famous in the Bible, but whose heart strays in an extravagant way. Uh, towards the end of his life. His his kingdom then that he passes on is split into two. Uh, civil war basically takes place. The kingdom is divided into a northern part and a southern part, and, and the same roller coaster ride begins that was during the book of Judges, up and down until the northern kingdom is conquered, shattered by the Assyrians and The people are scattered or destroyed. The infamous ten lost tribes of Israel of the northern kingdom in the 8th century BC, uh, destroyed. Now you have only the southern kingdom remains. And the southern kingdom of Judah and its two tribes, you know, struggle on again, the roller coaster ride until really Israel as a whole and Judah now, by name, reaches its lowest point under the reign of a king named Manasseh. He reigns for over 50 years and his, his wickedness exceeds all of those who go before him. In fact, uh, kings will tell us that, that the idolatry and the violence, the, particularly the, the killing of the innocent under his reign, exceeds even those, uh, that of the people before Israel entered the land, the Amorites those who were judged in the conquest for the cruelty and the, the absolute corruption of the culture, that, that Manasseh actually leads Judah into an even more vile expression. And his successor, his son Ammon, uh, follows in Manasseh's footsteps, And Manasseh, uh, I mean, Ammon is like despised and a coup actually takes place and he's, he's assassinated. Ammon is assassinated after only a few years. And those who try to seize power in the coup are then rejected by the people who put them to death and put Josiah, Ammon's eight year old son on the throne. We're going to pick up the story there about Josiah. Here's Second Kings chapter 22. We're just going to read a first portion of this chapter about Josiah being king. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedediah, daughter of Adiah, and she was from Boskath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshuliam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. Have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters and the builders and the masons. Also have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple, but they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are acting faithfully. Yochiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, the priest, Ah Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, Akbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people, for all of Judah, about what is written in this book, which has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book and have not acted in accordance with all that is written in there concerning us. It's against the the backdrop of generational unfaithfulness. That's really the the situation in Israel's history at this point. Generational unfaithfulness and the inescapable judgment to come. Already after Manasseh's reign, the Lord has declared through his prophets that the doom is coming to Judah as it came to the, the northern kingdom of Israel. That the same kind of process of conquest and scattering that happen is going to happen to Jerusalem and to Judah. And this is God's judgment on their unfaithfulness. So this generational unfaithfulness and inescapable judgment is the backdrop of this young King Josiah who leads Judah on the most comprehensive reform and return to God in Israel's history. Josiah does something that no other king in Israel does. He thoroughly reforms the nation and tries to lead it Into a new beginning. For himself and his people, Josiah turned back to God by doing five things. And those are the things that I want to focus on with you. First of all, Josiah turned back to God for himself and his people by choosing whose steps to follow in. This is absolutely critical. What we're told at the beginning of chapter 22 is that Josiah made a conscious choice from a really young age. It's just so impressive. He made a real choice to say, I'm going to follow in the footsteps of my father David, not my actual father Ammon or my grandfather Manasseh or all of the lineage of unfaithfulness that brought him to the throne. He says, I'm going to choose to follow in the footsteps of my father David. That choice, that recognition that somehow we have freedom as a gift, even when we've surrendered it into something like addiction, or even when we've surrendered it in a pattern of kind of behavior that has not brought us into greater freedom, but maybe has actually kind of surrendered some of that freedom, we still have a choice to make about whose steps ultimately are we going to follow. I know that some of us like to think of ourselves as pioneers, you know, like I'm just blazing my own trail. You know, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. We might think that we're kind of blazing our own trail and we're just following this broad beaten path that Jesus says leads to destruction. So many have walked on it before us. If we really want to be trailblazers. If we really want to do something individual and unique, then that path goes on a narrow road, and Jesus calls us to follow him. You know, our choice for a new beginning, you know, whether it happens, you know, for a 15-year-old girl dealing with a lifetime of kind of soul-destroying abuse, and then now the burden and the kind of Millstone around her neck of heroin addiction, you know, the, what's the path to a new beginning? It's the, it's the decision about whose footsteps I'm really going to follow in. Who, who are they really going to be? You know, my own background comes from some brokenness. Uh, my, my mother and father got really, you know, came apart when I was a, a young teenager, but they really probably should have come apart in their marriage, uh, you know, when I was an infant. Because the conflict and the, and the situation was uh, not good and my father was either absent or, or kind of violently present. And, and in that background, I remember as I came to Christ, as I made a decision to follow him, and I began kind of working that out in my life, I recognized that this void that I had in my life from an absent and abusive father, that that void that was present, that only God could make that up in my life. And it only could be my choice that I would allow him. I remember praying one time when I recognized that there were some gaps, you know, in my life, that there were some things missing. And how are those things going to be restored to me? I remember praying, you know, God, would you be my father? Would you take me from the place that you find me? Could I follow you? Could I walk in that legacy and not the legacy that I was handed by life in other ways? Those just incredibly essential choices about who's going to be my guide and whose path am I actually going to walk out? Josiah, we don't know how, we don't know exactly why. It, maybe it was a bit like what happened to the prophet Ezekiel. Remember that famous passage in in Ezekiel where God takes him to a valley of dry bones? Uh, in that passage, I think it's Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel is taken to this in a, uh, you know, vision, in reality. He's taken to this place of dry bones and and it's, it is the scene of great slaughter. How would you come into a valley that's full of human remains, that's full of bones? Only if there had been a great, great slaughter, a great defeat in that place. And so in a sense, God is taking Ezekiel and showing him the end of God's people, kind of the great defeat and the destruction of, of what's going to happen and what will happen even after, you know, Josiah's time. And, as, and one of the things that Ezekiel is told by the Lord is he's he's told to walk among the bones. That's so interesting. Walk among the ruins of defeat and, and destruction. Take a good look at them. You know, maybe that's how we come to our new beginning sometimes about, okay, who am I really going to follow? It's not simply that we're making this choice about, oh, this is better than that. Sometimes it's looking at the kind of dead end of the road that we're on, or or better yet, particularly if you're young, the road that others have been on, kind of walking among the ruins, walking among the devastation and kind of recognizing that what needs to happen here and in our life is that God needs to bring a brand new start. We must be born again. We must start this road with him and make this conscious choice that he's going to be our guide, that we're going to follow this one who calls us you know, on that way. He is that way. Josiah, in his courage and his, what, his recognition of of the emptiness of where things had been, makes that choice to, to follow in the footsteps of his father David. The second thing that happens so interestingly here in chapter 22, as Josiah makes his first attempts to try to restore the temple as a place of worship, as a place to meet with God he he dedicates money to its repair the his Manasseh, of course it set up a, a, a an asherah pole a, a, an idol right in the temple itself there were the temple at that period of time was ringed by brothels by by places for both male and female prostitutes uh, it's just it, it's hard to even uh, imagine the 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 mixture, the corruption, and Josiah begins tentatively to to try to bring restoration. And what happens is that the book of the law is found in the temple. Again, amazing that the people have even lost kind of knowledge of what the covenant with God included. Not everybody is you know agrees on what the book of the law you know would have been. Most people think it was some form of the book of Deuteronomy that we have in our Bible that recounts the covenant and includes the curses that will be in place in the covenant, which Josiah recognizes for the unfaithfulness of the people. It's read to him, this book of the covenant, you know, Josiah is recognizes in that place that, in fact, the very words of this covenant have come true for the people. And his response is to want to take hold of of God's will and His way, to rediscover that, to return to that sense of rediscovering God's word and His will. In our own life, in our journey, we follow up the new beginning that says, this is the path that I'm going to choose. These are the footsteps that I'm going to follow with this hunger, this desire. I want to I want to know more. I want to know more. I came to Christ as a total outsider, someone who had no... Background or history in faith or or in Christianity in any way, and I remember being so hungry to to just try to understand, try to get a sense of what does God expect of me. Like the prophet says, you know, what does He require of us that we would you know walk humbly, that we would do act justly, that. That we would follow out, God, his ways. What, what does he require of us? And that individual personal hunger, Josiah had it. He recognized in the reading of the covenant that this was God speaking to him and he wanted to respond to what he did not fully know. And that path of hunger and growth. I look around and a lot of us are, are, are starting our journey. We're more in kind of the beginning you know, of the marathon. Who won the marathon, by the way, today? Anybody know? Anybody here? No? Nope. No, no marathon fans. No. Is it Kenyan for sure, or is that you know basically it? It was one of the ten Kenyans who won. Yeah. So, so that that would be the way it would be. Uh, but this sense of starting off and having that desire that I'm not simply going to rely on the passed down tradition as much, as helpful as as hard one as that might be, but I'm going to rediscover for myself the word of God and the will of God. When that hunger begins to kind of be generated in somebody's life, the the path before them gets really exciting. It gets really adventurous because God really does want to lead us by his word. It really is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And as we turn our heart to know it and understand and wrestle for meaning and try to apply what we know. I mean, it, it changes everything. And Josiah is in that place of change. The book of the law has been rediscovered. He's begun to hear it and he wants to, to understand it and he wants to apply what he understands. And, and that's all part of this miracle of a new beginning. And then thirdly, for Josiah turning back to God and making this new beginning he humbles his heart before the Lord. When he hears the words of the law and he recognizes the guilt of the people, of his nation, of himself, he tears his clothes as a, an act of of regret, of, of recognition, the, of grief. And and in that place, he humbles his heart. He asks what we don't read going forward. He asks for the prophets in the land to speak to what's happened. And a woman Prophet hold, Prophetess Holda, she tells him that in fact, that these words are true from God in the covenant and they are unfolding even as, you know, he's experienced it. God's judgment is coming on the people for their rejection of the covenant. But she says to him, but because you humbled yourself, because you humbled yourself before the Lord, this is not going to happen in your lifetime. That God's going to be gracious to you. That you're going to be, you know, buried at peace with your forefathers. That that God is going to work in your life because you humbled your heart. That sense that we have as we begin, you know, I'm going to choose to follow. I'm going to learn and grow. And I'm going to humble myself under the authority of God. Nancy and I, our, our ministry at the Desert Vineyard, you know, it's truly desert. You know, there's no... No water there, very little. We get rain five or six days a year and not much of it. And only thing that grows there, it grows because you water it artificially. I mean, other than the Joshua trees that are natural and tumbleweeds that were imported. You know, tumbleweeds, like, that was a good idea. I don't know who had that idea. You know, Russian thistles, that's what they are, you know. And somebody, like in the 1800s, in the West in America, thought... Oh, yeah, I'm sure Russians, immigrants thought, you know, cattle will love these things. And, and so they, you know, Russian thistles, They when they start to grow, they're soft. Uh, but even soft, they have this kind of repellent effect on animals. Hardly goats won't even eat them, you know. And, and so, but when they grow during the summer, after starting in the spring soft, they turn brittle and dry and then they break off. They grow in a ball and they break off at the ground in the winds in the desert and they are the perfect perpetuating seed machine. They roll and tumble and spread their seeds everywhere. Therefore, the West is covered with tumbleweeds and not a cow in sight will eat any of them. (laughs) Kind of reminds me of how people imported mongoose from India into Arizona, because there are so so many rattlesnakes in the desert, we have them all over, all kinds of rattlesnakes. But in Arizona, chicken farmers, because they were losing so many chickens uh, to uh, rattlesnakes, they imported mongoose. And mongoose, of course, kill cobras in India, but rattlesnakes strike about a hundred times faster than a cobra. And so the first few mongoose that went down to rattlesnakes learned, don't mess with rattlesnakes. And what are they going to eat? Chickens. That's what they ate. They ate chickens. Uh, life. It's almost too funny. They weren't sometimes so tragic, you know. So incredibly tragic. But that sense of humbling ourselves before the Lord, humbling our hearts and saying, God, I really do want your will and your way. Our ministry in the desert is, is really defined by only a few passages of scripture. Like one of them would be Luke 15 that says, Jesus welcomes sinners and ate with them. That kind of defines what we do. We welcome broken people and we eat with them. We even in our worship, you know, we serve, we have a Starbucks in the center of our complex. We have, I mean, an actual Starbucks and and we serve coffee and bagels and muffins during the service really drives like traditional people crazy. They just think we're like so irreligious and, you know, all that stuff and, and it's, they're really not the target. You know, our target is people who are far from God and we're trying to create an environment that lowers the barrier for them to approach what we're trying to share with them, which is Jesus. We want to welcome sinners and eat with them. You know, this reality that Jesus is the holiest, most righteous, the, the perfect, you know, expression of humanity, and he comes into this world, and in that holiness and righteousness and perfection, sinners want him to be at their party. There must be some way... To pull off godliness with graciousness. Amen. There must be some way to pull off godliness with graciousness that gives us inroads and relationship and connection and des- that makes some who are searching desire to be with us. That's, that's basically what we tried to create in the desert. A place where those who are broken and searching would actually desire to be with us. And the end result is really, you know, Jesus says in Luke 15, you know, if you're not for me, you're against me. And if you don't gather with me, you scatter. And that's so profoundly true. If we don't gather with Jesus, if we're not reaching out like he's reaching out, we're just pushing people away. And we're drifting from him ourselves because he is right in the trenches of life with people, trying to pull them into a new beginning calling them to follow him, bringing his word and his way to them, you know, creating hunger, you know, making opportunity and that issue of humility that I really want that. Whatever my personality, you know, whatever my, you know, bent, I really want Lord, your will in my life. I want to humble myself. I want to recognize that there's brokenness in not following your will for my life, and I embrace it. I embrace it. That's what Josiah does. couple more things, and then we'll be finished. For himself and his people, Josiah turned back to God by cleaning house. That gets pretty radical in Second uh, Kings 22 and 23, that Josiah cleans house. He drives, uh, you know. He tears down all of the idols, uh, and he, he actually goes out searching for them. Even goes into what was formerly the northern kingdom of Israel and tears them down there. He he takes the ashes of the idols and spreads them on the graves of of people who've been following them. He he destroys the priests and the, you know you know. Practicers of divination that are kind of everywhere in the community. He he thoroughly purges the temple it's himself, in itself. He, he cleans house. And sometimes a new beginning really requires cleaning house. A, a removal of the things that are empty and lifeless. A removal of the things. The big issue with idolatry, and that's why there's such a connection to it, with things like addiction and brokenness in life. The big thing about idolatry is comfort. It provides false comfort, or as the prophets say, it comforts in vain, in an empty way. That's what idols do. They kind of pr- promise and you know deceive, and they say that they're going to deliver life, and they don't deliver life. That would be a classic thing you know, for every kind of addiction issue. I'm going to get life out of this. I'm going to get more out of this. And instead of getting life out of this, I actually get destruction. That's what an idol does. And cleaning house means I recognize those things that provide in my life a false comfort. A false comfort. You can't have a real new beginning and carry your idols forward. You really can't. You can't kind of be liberated on the narrow path and be dragging the things that are false along with you. At some point, we have to clean house. We have to cut ourselves loose from those things that have empty comfort attached to them. Josiah very courageously, very determinedly cleans house for himself and for the people. Last thing, and we'll finish. Josiah turns back to God by remembering and celebrating God's mercy. He does something that hasn't been done amongst the people in 500 years. That's pretty amazing. He decides that he's going to celebrate the Passover as a nation. Hadn't been done in 500 years. He actually pays for it himself, for the sacrifice that's going to be involved for the Passover meal. He calls all the people together in the you know, community of Judah To celebrate this together. And of course, Passover is the remembrance that before, when they were just, you know, being destroyed, they were under the threat of Pharaoh, that God intervened and had mercy on them and delivered them. That's what He's doing. And he's saying, Look, God was merciful in the past. When we as a people were about to not exist anymore. God can be merciful again. And he calls the people to celebrate that mercy. How how are we in our life, in our new beginning, remembering and celebrating God's mercy? We're not trying to earn our way. We're not trying to reform ourselves so somehow we'll be acceptable to God. We believe in the gospel that Jesus has loved us and forgiven us. Even before we acknowledged anything, while we were yet enemies, we had our fist raised or our back turned or our finger lifted to heaven and God loved us. And sent his son to die in our place. The mercy of God. When Paul, I mean, when Peter goes to Cornelius's house in Acts ten, you know, the, this a centurion, a, a Roman soldier, the face of the enemy, and God tells him to follow these servants who've invited him to Cornelius's house and to and, and to not call what's what God has made clean unclean. Just blowing Peter's mind that that God is not going to show preference of you know uh, Jews over Gentiles or or Israelites over Romans and he goes to Cornelius's house he's got all his family there and Cornelius says God you know sent told me to send for you to tell us what to do and Peter starts to tell him about Jesus and he's really even just getting warmed up in Acts 10 when he says in Jesus and and what he's done in his name, there's forgiveness of sins. And as soon as he talks about God's mercy, as soon as he talks about forgiveness, the spirit falls on the whole place and the sermon's over and, and the job is done. It's about mercy, knowing it, receiving it, celebrating it, remembering it. I'm sure that's what underlies the command to, to remember the Lord's sacrifice and communion. I'm sure it is. This return again and again to the remembrance and the celebration of the fact that God is merciful to us. Whatever our background, whatever our brokenness, however kind of distant we became, that God has been merciful and reached to us when we were far away. Josiah celebrates that, wants the people to remember it and know it as they move forward in this new beginning. I don't know... You know, who all needed to hear what I'm talking about tonight? I know some people did. But you know what I also believe is that some of you are called to, to lead change for others. That you're really called to blaze a trail. We so desperately in the church today need young leaders to rise up and, and, to, and to lead change and new beginning for others. To, to blaze that trail that Jesus would lead them on as he's led some of us who are as old as Mark on. That, you know, that, that next kind of generation, uh, I'm just not going to let up till your birthday's over. You know, just not. It's, it's still till midnight. I have to make fun of that. Uh, but I, I just think that there's some of you here who are in that place of God has got a call on your life to, you know, to get it right to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in that way as a leader, to, to turn your heart towards the truth of his word for your life, to humble yourself in embracing that will, to, to live it out, to live it out with courage, to not be afraid to let go of the false things and to lay hold of God's mercy in a real and confident way. I want a chance for us to pray together and have the Lord speak to us or encourage our hearts. So set your stuff aside if you've got your Bible on your lap or whatever, and let's just get quiet for a moment.